Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined by Donald Edward Casebolt. Thanks for talking with all of us today. Thanks for having the opportunity to talk. We've had you um, on the podcast before talking about your previous book, Child of the Apocalypse, about Ellen G. White, and you've been working on a really fun series on the Spectrum website called Case by Casebolt, both of which you have been helping folks not just understand Ellen White, but understand the young Ellen White and time prophecies. Not just one, the 2300 days, but a bunch of other ones based off of the same methodology. Can you kind of remind us why you got interested in this and uh, maybe wow us with the amount of uh, Millerite material that you've read? Sure. Well, I basically got interested because uh, I've been interested in Ellen White going back to about fifth grade when my uh, school teacher had us on the blackboard write up the charts and the time periods and all the prophecies and calculations and it went together so well and uh, I memorized it at that time and it's just been kind of simmering on my intellectual back burners for a long time but uh, I decided I should go back to the actual magazines and articles and books that are written about the 1840s and the Millerite movement and uh, you get a historical uh, perspective rather than uh, getting it secondhand through people who are writing about it today and not using second and not using primary sources. That's something I really appreciate reading Child of the Apocalypse and now reading your new book, which we'll be talking about, Father Miller's Daughter. I really like that you're going back to those. Um, primary materials, and really, um, you've done an incredible amount of reading, um, reading that uh, Larry Garrity, uh, Jonathan Butler, Ron Graybill all have um, uh, endorsed in, in helping people understand beyond the hagiography and beyond the apologetics what was really going on in the 1840s and 1850s and um, helping us understand uh, why that matters to us uh, today. Um, we're talking about Father Miller's daughter. Congratulations on your next publication. You're really, uh, this is published by Whiff and Stock and it uh, came out this year um, just briefly. And um, can you talk about how Father Miller's daughter kind of builds off of Child of the Apocalypse and then what's uh, different about it? Okay. Child of the Apocalypse, I, I use that title child because as I looked at it, it's just sort of obvious. When she first met Miller, she was only 12 years old. 
And then for about the next four years, from age 12 to 16, she was in a very small subcultural group that was highly influenced by Miller and kind of had a, an echo chamber type of experience, which their ideas are reinforced. And that sort of ended or near ended when she saw Foy only about two weeks prior to Miller's date of uh, when he said Christ was going to come in March 1844. Yeah, I was just at the American Academy of Religion meetings with some Adventist Society of Religion scholars, and I mentioned, I just asked a, a group of of Adventist religion scholars who were there at the table with me, how old was Ellen White when she first heard William Miller? Obviously, they hadn't been paying attention to our previous discussions because they didn't know. And when I said 12 years old, they were visibly surprised. It's something that Adventists just don't understand. And once you get that, which you do a great job of helping people understand, not just her age, but her her mentality, her spiritual and emotional state uh, through that kind of tween and teen uh, period. Can you talk about her mentality as she's hearing William Miller talk about what we'll be talking about today, 15 proofs for why Jesus would return in 1843? What was, how was, what was going on in her mind? And, and, and why was that such a, a convicting message? Well, William Miller had a number of self-conceptions about how he did things and why he did things. And, of course, he lived in a culture that had certain assumptions. And uh, actually, for some period of time, going back to the Reformation, there had been these calculations of when the end times would come. And originally, the Protestant world thought that the end of the world was going to come between a gigantic battle between the Catholics and the Protestants and with the wars of religion shortly after the birth of Protestantism. And uh, by that time, of course, a millennium and a half of history had gone by. And whereas the New Testament says Christ, I think it's in Mark 9, 1, that There'll be some living there that will see Christ come, and they they will not have tasted death before Christ come. It kind of posed a problem to the Christian world: is why hasn't Christ come, and what what what's our solution to that? And the solution they had is uh, kind of the day year thing. If, if you can have year intervals instead of just mere days, then you can stretch it out to after uh, twelve hundred and sixty. AD, then you can fit in 1260. And if you get up to uh, 1800, you can have 2000 years of day year history. And uh, Miller was not the only one that was doing these calculations. And they weren't just single calculations, like you mentioned, uh, the 2300 days. A number of people seem to be competing to find three and four and five and six different. Um, time periods which would all, all coincidentally or designedly end exactly in 1843 and that was one of Miller's big selling points was he said he had these 15 
what he called prophetic periods that all ended in 1843. And therefore he came to the conclusion that Christ would come about, which is an awfully big about, and that about approximation became a very exact figure in the course of Millerism in about 1843. So you begin chapter three by writing, Ellen G. White gave very powerful endorsements of William Miller's divinely inspired insights into the prophecies. It's important to recognize that language, divinely inspired, likening him even to John the Baptist and Elijah, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. She further stated that Miller, quote, dwelt upon the 15 prophetic periods and piled up proof to strengthen his position. These were clear and cons conclusive proofs and plain and startling facts. One of the things that um, you're doing is not just focusing on William Miller, but recognizing that the same ideas that Adventists endorse when they're talking about the 2300 days were part of a lot of other, let's say, fanciful, but fully endorsed by Ellen White ideas about how to link various uh, time prophecies. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important for people to understand to really make that connection? Yes. Uh, one thing I'd like to mention before touching directly on that was Miller's concept of himself, which was passed down through Ellen White to the Adventist Church today, he had the concept that he was kind of an original, that he didn't get anything from any previous commentators, that the only source of his information was a concordance in the Bible. And then Ellen White adds on to that, that angels visited regularly and opened his mind to prophecies in Daniel and Revelation, which had not been uh, open to the Christian world for centuries. So he had this brand new light. And uh, also he saw himself as being a literal commentator. Everything was literal. And actually all those major assumptions about him are incorrect. He actually was not that original. He got very specific things and quite a number of things from previous commentators. He didn't just use his Bible in a commentary. And when he was using his Bible and a commentary, he twisted things around. And uh, I'm going to give one example that I think really are a couple of, a couple of examples which illustrate this a little later on in our talk. But one, for example, is I think I've all the ad all the address world knows of the day-year principle, but with his rules of interpretation, he said, I can go in my concordance and I find the word day in certain places. And in other places, it says a day is as a thousand years. So therefore, a prophetic day could be a thousand years. And he applies that a couple of different places. So he was not doing exegesis where he let things, or where he drew uh, meaning out of the text, he imposed his preconceptions onto the text, which is eisegesis. 
a, perhaps a foreboding or forbidding term, but the distinction between isogenes and exogenes is critical because uh, in essence, the early pioneers accepted their concept about what happened on October 22 on basis based on eisegesis rather than exegesis. And that has, yeah. as the church has matured, scholars have realized you cannot support this biblically, even though the Millerites would throw a whole slew of texts at you. But if you look at those texts, they don't say it anywhere near what they interpreted them to mean. Yeah, so there's some inconsistencies, to say the least, about how this uh, hermeneutical approach is uh, used. And you have quite a few examples, not just the use of a day to sometimes mean a year, sometimes mean a thousand years. You talk about an earthquake, sometimes Miller treats it as a physical or then a political earthquake. And that gets to uh, a really, uh, I think, an important point that you're making, that M Miller is not this sort of um, uh, great example of, of, of hermeneutics, and he's not a literalist. He's an allegorical interpreter, which has a long history, not just in the Christian tradition, of folks taking a um, a really creative uh, approach. Uh, we do it all the time, in fact, um, in a kind of lay way. I've been in many a Bible study where folks are encouraged to kind of read through and interpret, you know, based on their experience. It can be a spiritually affirming way uh, where people can make the Bible sort of come alive, apply it to their certain context. You see it all the time when people claim promises a, a strip of a poetry written 3,000 plus years ago suddenly means that that today they will have peace or they will find what they're looking for in some way. These are examples kind of very, um, let's say, uh, uh, practical examples of the way that allegorical interpretation use, is used. But, you know, Great theologians like Augustine also employ allegorical interpretation as he works through uh, the first few chapters of Genesis. So there's a long tradition of Christians using allegorical interpretation. You argue that William Miller and Ellen White, at least the young Ellen White, is employing this method as well. Uh, how do you justify that? Let me just give you one concrete example. One of Miller's 15 proofs he drew from Hosea 6, 1 through 3, and I'm just going to read that text. Quote, Come, let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days, and these days are going to become millennia, after two days will he revive us, and the third day he will raise us up. That third day again will be another millennia and raise us up will be the resurrection and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know if we follow on to the Lord, he is going forth. His going forth is prepared as the morning and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. 
So that's the text. And then he comments on the text and gives its meaning. He says, Hosea 6, 1 to 3, quote, is one of the richest and most interesting prophecies that was ever delivered to mortals by any prophet since the world began. Now that's quite a superlative uh, recommendation. And yet I would bet none of the persons listening to our voices today would have the slightest idea of how this was a prophecy and how Miller applied it. He says, he goes on, he says, every word speaks and is full of meaning. Every sentence is a volume of instruction. No wisdom of man could communicate as much in a few words. It is a pearl of great price lying deep in the waters of prophecy. It is a diamond which will cut the film, which covers the visual organ of the readers of God's word. It is a gem in the mountain of God's house, shining in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now from this quite fulsome recommendation, he says, historically, this refer these days are a millennium, and you have two millennium and then a third millennium, and this these millenniums started in 158 BC. Now, why he picks 158 BC, we won't get into too, too deeply, but since often in these prophecies, explicitly there's never given any beginning date, so it's kind of hard to have an end date. It's hard to have a period at all without a beginning and an end date. But if you look at these carefully, you can see that the beginning and end dates are supplied arbitrarily without any exegetical justification. So in this case, he says it started in 158 BC, which takes you up to 1843. And then 1843 will be the third millennium or the sabbatical millennium in, in the thousand years that's mentioned in Revelation. And you'll have the, the first resurrection at that point in time. So the question is, does that show that Miller has a lot of understanding of prophetic uh, text? Is this a prophecy? And you can go down the list for, for several others. So he's not doing a literal interpretation. And yet we not only say that Miller did literal interpretation, but we are to do the same type of literal interpretation that Miller did, and which we've done this quote unquote liberal or literal interpretation, except it's not literal at all if you look at it. And that's why in, uh, in a recent book published by Gil Valentine, Ostriches and what's it, Ostriches and Canaries. Um, typically, people say he did literal exegesis. Uh, you can look at these 15 proofs. They're not literal at all. The, the, the confusion comes in is Miller said there was going to be a literal second coming where every eye will see him physically, whereas his opponents said, no, there would be sort of a gradual dawning of the spiritual age of Aquarius and things will gradually get peaceful and there won't be a literal second coming of Christ. <clears throat> And those two ideas have become conflated. So 
he was only literal in the sense that he said, yeah, physically you're going to see, every eye will see him, you know, from China to, uh, to Russia. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard, I remember hearing a few sermons about how uh, various ways that could possibly happen. We won't go into that now because we're avoiding the literal and we're thinking about the literary. And I think this is a, you know, someone could ask why does this matter? Um, you really point out that it matters uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, especially if people are going to make claims about Ellen White. They need to really understand this early history and the claims that she was making about her own gifts and applying those gifts in endorsing William Miller. And then this uh, this kind of literalism, this sort of fantasy about you just can take a concordance and link some words together is uh, if somebody hasn't been in a church and listened to a sermon carefully lately, people still employ this method, but without the excitement of William Miller's predictions. <laughs> but they're still grabbing a piece uh, from wisdom literature, a piece from poetry, a piece from history, and linking it all together in some sort of uh, uh, word for us today from the Lord. And um, often it is employing the same sort of proof texting method that uh, uh, William Miller really um, modeled for uh, the Adventists. Uh, let's jump into some, uh, I think, a really important point that you make, which is that this revealed truth, this time prophecy, was not just something that folks cr could maybe take or leave and be Christians. It was a saving faith required for salvation to believe this. Did Ellen White believe that too? Yeah, she did. She used exactly the same phraseology. It was a saving grace or the saving faith. And um, that's one thing that actually struck me only fully after I'd already published this book is to realize really, because it seemed sort of in, inconceivable to me, but to state it baldly, there are several references in the literature that where people are saying, if you want to be saved, you have to believe on the definite time, on a definite day. And if you don't believe that Christ is going to come on October 22, 1844, that's because you're a stiff-necked person who's obstinate, who's not hearing the word of the Lord. And since you don't understand, you are, by definition, the wicked. And the wise, they will understand. And the wise are those who do uh, support the proposition that they can know the day and the hour. And, of course, that's the biggest twist on this literal interpretation. If I tell you, you will not know the day or the hour, and you tell me a literal interpretation of that is that you must know the day or the hour you're going to hell, that's about as upside down as you can get. But that's what they said. And, uh, for example, in the Western Midnight Cry of March 23, there was an article published. It was called The Scriptural Test of Saving Faith. And it was all about these prophetic periods. And just think, if, if you got, if you went to a revival meeting and the preacher could show you mathematically that 
15 different things all coincided and came out to this one day, that would be pretty impressive. And that's what Miller had, but uh, the quotation is as follows. The question as to the true import of the prophetic periods is actually proving a test of character, which is the same type of language Ellen White uses about when, especially when prophecy fails. Well, that was a test of character. Proving a test of character at the present time and all over the world where the Bible is read. Just for, for one example. Yeah, that, that language about test of character is something that uh, obviously goes through her uh, works. And it's important for folks to recognize that's tied in with salvation. It's something that the last generation theology uh, heresy uh, really understands and tries to um, amplify within Adventism. And uh, Ted Wilson, General Conference President, yikes, likes to use that kind of language. Language he also likes to talk about is the three angels message. And that, you know, kind of gets linked together people hear three angels message okay that just kind of means we need to uh you know spread the spread the gospel bring people in but what those three angels messages are becomes very important especially because ted wilson takes those individual messages very seriously and at the most recent uh, executive committee meetings for the gc we saw um, the three angels messages committee uh, members come and talk about uh, their work and Ted Wilson really wants us to return to this sort of language you help to elucidate that and one way that you point out is that to be saved getting back to this language about character and believing that Jesus was going to return as a way of proving your uh, righteousness was uh, Millerites had to come out of Babylon. So that meant that other Christians would not be saved. And that is key to the three angels' messages in a historic uh, sense. So to promote the three angels' messages is to believe that other Christians will not be saved unless they join the Advent believers. Is that correct? Essentially, yes, um, but let me approach it slightly different fashion. Please. Originally, uh, the Catholic Church was Babylon and had uh, all these terrible things, the horror of Babylon, harlot, and uh, apostate church, and so forth and so on. But when the Millerites came to the conclusion that they had these drop-dead obvious 15 proofs they came to the conclusion, this, this is so clear that God is revealing this truth to us. And just like any other revealed truth, we're required to believe it. And people who don't believe it, they are by definition the wicked and they, they are going to be lost. So all the Protestant sects that did not accept Millerism became part and parcel of Babylon and uh, were associated and just as evil as the as the Catholic Church, and so therefore they applied the words Babylon to them, 
They said they were the Antichrist. They were Satan's kingdom. And of course, you had such strong language being tossed back and forth with, uh, with Miller's opponents saying, hey, this is, you're talking crazy talk. It's obvious you're not supposed to predict a, a day of, of the Lord coming at a certain year or a specific date, especially. And so you basically had, um, Miller's, or you had, the, yeah, in the come out sermon, Charles Litch said, no one that is ever saved can remain in Babylon. So it was required that you come out of these other churches if you wanted to be saved and everything else, every other, well, the often Adventists associate 666 with the mark of the beast and that's Catholicism, but actually originally they said this 666 represents 666 different Protestant sects, all of which reject Millerism and all of which are going to hell in the handbasket with the horror and the beast and the Antichrist. That's why I always enjoy talking with you, uh, Don, is because you have done the research and you have these really interesting anecdotes that uh, uh, kind of uh, enlarge on the usual understandings. Thank you. So we're getting close to uh, wrapping up the first of several conversations about your new book, Father Miller's Daughter. And we're, we'll be talking about S.S. Snow, who's really the person who helped move us into 1844. And we'll be talking about some other interesting characters, Joe Turner, Crozier, and James White. And the way that this, this methodology from Miller as you point out, is really um, the inheritance of uh, passed on to Ellen White as uh, father, as daughter to Father Miller. And she accepted all that basically long before she's had her first vision. She's already accepted these ideas implicitly, and they're grandfathered, grandfathered into what I'll call proto-Adventism since the church didn't form officially till the 60s. But if you have the proto-pioneers, they had certain ideas about the meaning of October 22, 1844, which were preformed even before the Great Disappointment. So next time we talk, we'll be talking about this sort of the kind of mid-1840s and um, the way that these um, ideas get uh, inculcated into um, Adventism. Anything that you want to leave us with to think about as, um, as folks uh, consider what all this means and, and why they should care? I'll just leave with one short anecdote, and that is James White was quite certain that Christ was going to come back in the autumn of 1845, and he had a Bible proof. And he said, if you just read this Bible proof, it will become obvious to you. And I'm certain, uh, I'm totally certain that this is going to happen. And he said that, he wrote that as late as September, 1845. Great, I want to emphasize that. You're talking about 1845. So we'll be talking about that next time uh, we uh, chat. And uh, thank you so much for all the work that you've put in 
to helping us understand uh, Adventist history better. Well, thank you for being such an appreciative listener and hearer and, and uh, interrogation artist. <laughs> well, take care. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely 